What's up, Decibel people? Decibel Wines podcast people. Uh, normally I don't do this. I don't come in with a little intro beforehand. Uh, I guess on some podcasts this is where you would hear some acoustic guitars and nice intro music or some kind of big, bold rock song to start things off. But normally I just get right into it. And actually I've had to cut this a couple times because I've just found it a little awkward to sit here and talk by myself, but I'm getting used to it. And I thank you guys for coming along on the journey with me. But yeah, usually I just sit down and start talking to somebody. And that somebody this week was Malcolm Reeves, who's a pretty legendary guy here in New Zealand and just worked in Australia and France and America. And most recently he's doing a lot of work in China, which is a pretty awesome wine market these days. And obviously for a lot of reasons, um, a pretty incredible place uh, affecting the world right now and uh, consumer all the way down to, uh, making some things and making some of their own wines. And we talk a bit about that. But, uh, when I did sit down with Malcolm, I just sort of got right into it with him. And I did want to mention, uh, not only Decibel Wines, which is the ultimate sponsor, which is my, are my wines that I make here in New Zealand. Uh, I do a Sauvignon Blanc, uh, a Malbec, which is quite unique for New Zealand. And, uh, also some Pinot Noir with uh, one of the other podcastees, uh, Chris Reed, who if you go back to one of my first episodes, I think my first episode I did with Chris, I'm going to do another episode with him soon, catch up with him in all his travels. Um, but And I'm also doing a white blend this year, uh, Chardonnay based with some Viognier, possibly some Pinot Gris. We'll see how that works out. But that's every week. Every week, you know, Decibel Wines. You can go to decibelwines.com to find out more. This week, uh, I did a special with uh, some wines up on buywineusa.com, which is actually the service I use for Decibel Wines as well. But through the Wine Berserkers uh, forum and website, which is a pretty awesome uh, wine network, I did a big special on their annual sale. And that was on Monday, and that was only offered to them. And you had to be kind of a member of that to get some Unison and Desert Heart wines, which are top-tier premium wines from New Zealand that I help bring into the U.S. And these are phenomenal wines. Uh, I can say that with all effort and all true... uh, Or I can say that with all honesty, because uh, I put in a lot of effort, particularly on the Unison wines, and they're uh, fantastic that... Such small premium wineries are available in the U.S. and can be shipped right to your door. So it's a pretty cool service. Uh, You can order a minimum of three bottles. You can mix and match between different wineries, different wines within that winery. Uh, And if you use the promo code BERZERK, which is B-E-R, not B-E-S, B-E-R-S-E-R-K, you can uh, get 40% off on those wines, which is pretty ridiculous. So uh, check it out. Go to buywineusa.com. Put in the promo code BERSERK. It'll go till February 1st. Uh, I'll extend it some more if I get some emails about it, which you can always email me at wineisfood at gmail.com. Almost forgot my own email address there for a second. Uh, And check it out. Go to buywineusa.com. Go down to the New Zealand section. If you click on Unison Vineyard or click on Desert Heart, uh, you'll see that Desert Heart has two tiers of Pinot. They're both awesome. And actually, 
uh, both tasting great in their own way. The Mackenzie's runs like sort of the silky smooth, uh, that's all a little more new French oak Pinot. And the other one is a sort of really vibrant Otago Pinot, uh, which is a vineyard blend and just ridiculous value for those wines. And then the Unison is a Giblet Gravels blend of Merlot, Cabernet, and uh, Syrah. And yeah, that's uh, from the Giblet Gravels. It's They call it the classic blend. And uh, and actually 2008, uh, they didn't make their top tier, so all their best uh, fruit went into that wine. So pretty awesome wine there. And then their 100% Syrah, which is from 2009, which was a fantastic vintage. So check that out. If uh, you're not in the U.S., I know some people listen to this podcast in some other places. Um, send me an email. Maybe we can get you the wines another way. Um, so that's about it. I do want to say a couple things about Malcolm. You know, I had a bunch of things written down. I kind of got the questions that I wanted to ask him. I normally don't make notes, but there was some things that, uh, I wanted to touch base with him. We pretty much covered them all, but as you'll see during the interview, he just kind of goes off and, you know, the guy, I had no idea actually has a little bit of broadcasting background and we had a bit of chat about that before we recorded. So maybe there's something down the road we might do again with him, but a super fascinating guy who's been all over the world and just quite a character. He kind of reminds me of like Sean Connery or something. If he were to make wine uh, and be have just such a history of Hawke's Bay and New Zealand overall. And it was really at the foundation of uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and Hawke's Bay Reds and knows about the Giblet Gravels. It's, it's pretty crazy. So uh, have fun. Have a good listen. And, um, yeah, again, my email is wineisfood at gmail.com. Send me a note. Tell me what you guys think. And uh, a bunch more podcasts coming up soon. I was on a little hiatus over Christmas and with a bunch of travels uh, through the through the U.S. and back to New Zealand and started a new job. Uh, so I'm settling in now into the new year and we're going to have uh, some uh, foreigners coming through here to New Zealand. I always like to try to grab some young winemakers and see, you know, what's led them here. And uh, we'll have working on some other uh, legendary New Zealand producers. And uh, so, yeah, enjoy. Take care. Hey, this is Daniel Brennan, and we are uh, with Malcolm Reeves in the hills behind Taradale. And uh, what's this area called, Malcolm? This well, area? Pariety. Pariety, uh, up in the hills uh, of Hawke's Bay. Near with, the Mission Vineyards. Yeah, near Mission and just off Church Road near some of the oldest, uh, well, near the oldest winery, one of the oldest wineries in New Zealand. The oldest, right? The oldest, really. And uh, I'm with uh, Malcolm Reeves. Now, uh, in... Uh, past episodes, I've done everything. I've, I've really talked to people about how they've gotten into the industry, uh, having known a little bit about you, uh, and, or, or not only into the industry, but kind of what's led them up to this point. Uh, I think you just told me you started in 1973, and we could probably fill up about three or four hours of material if we started <laughs> going through all the things you've done. Uh, I was thinking on the drive up here that uh, we have a mutual friend who once referred to you as the Yoda of the wine industry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to know who that is. <laughs> you might have an idea. But yeah. anyway, he, um, you know, what I think what we were referring to is you've done a lot of things and you were actually uh, 
one of my uh, instructors and lecturers and teachers at uh, Eastern Institute of Technology in Taradale and taught the best course I thought in the in the paper which was or in the the uh, degree which was the um, wine chemistry paper which I kind of felt like in my third year we sort of got down to ah okay this is really getting into it uh, but having met met you the year before and done some wine production classes with you and asked around uh, you've now, let's see if we can at least cover what you've done in the past you've been in some kind of food yeah Food processing? Yes, yeah, well... In Australia, is that yeah, true? Yeah, in Australia. And you've been a winemaker? Yes. And you started your own winery? Correct. And you've been a lecturer and a chemist, I guess? Yes. Some, and you know a lot about engineering, because yeah. I've had you do some engineering, and uh, physics, which goes along, along with that. Uh, you've done some consulting work. You've done obviously been involved in sales and marketing on that side of things. And I'm sure I missed a few things in there, but probably one of the more recent things that I'm interested in talking about today is your work in China with New Zealand wine growers in Hawke's Bay. Uh, what, what did I miss in there? Other other <laughs> things to related to uh, you know, food the, and wine? The research work and uh, as well as that... Uh, I guess I had a radio program at one stage. Oh, I, okay. I, for 29 years, I wrote a wine column in the Palmerston North paper, even though I was living here in Hawke's Bay. Mm. And then in Australia, uh, I was involved in yeast, and so when I was here at uh, EIT, I used to give the wine micro classes as well. So, uh, yeah. Very well-rounded. And I think uh, the respect that I had... Uh, for you at that time really had to do with the guy who's sort of walked the walk not just talk the talk and there's I've had both teachers and some are very very academic and you certainly had the goods academically but also I felt like I could pull you aside after class and say hey what do you think about this or you know uh, have, have you what have you seen in the winery and not only did you have some good answers sometimes you would say we don't have all the answers on this one, which many times in wine uh, can be that way. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose, look, I'll go back almost to the beginning, and that was uh, my first job, or one of my early jobs in Australia, was uh, running a yeast factory. And allied with that, we also used to make vinegar, and some people no said nothing changed much when I went into the wine industry. <laughs> but, you know, all jokes aside, I started out making yeast principally and vinegar, but the yeast was important because we were one of the first producers of wine yeast in the world. That is dried yeast specifically for mm. the wine industry. And I spent many a long night running experimental fermenters in the yeast factory making uh, small brews trying to master the growth habits of the selected wine yeast strains. And we used to dry this and supply this to the Australian industry. And of course at this stage I really had a, a very minor knowledge of wine making per se, but I did know quite a lot about yeast. And uh, one of the best ways, well when you're making bread yeast, how do you test it amongst other things? Does it rise? And, yeah, and you make a loaf of bread. Yeah. So you you get the flour and you have a test bakery and you make a loaf of bread. So what do you do when you have a wine yeast? You make some wine. You make some <laughs> wine. So you better learn how to make wine and what, how is wine made. And that was my entree. And I also blame my future father-in-law who at one stage was, uh, I believe, the general manager of Dalgetty Wines and Spirits in Australia. 
And so socially, uh, Wait, well, you, you blame him. I like, I, I like him. that terminology <laughs> yeah. for bringing you into this godforsaken business. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the, the Australian red wine in particular, followed by Martel Cordon Bleu Cognac on Sunday evenings, was very easy to take. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so at some point when I ended up coming back here, then married, coming back to Palmerston North, I found I actually knew more about winemaking than anybody else. And of course, I had the scientific and food training and the fermentation training to be able to understand quite a lot about wine. And so I had the happy position of being probably about three months ahead of anyone else in knowledge. And wine was really just starting to take off in New Zealand. So what year was that? 1970, 71. Okay. So I was socially very, a very usable commodity, <laughs> you know, invite yeah. him out to dinner and hear about wine. Uh-huh. Malcolm knows the true story and so on yeah and i soon got bitten with the wine bug uh, professionally so at massey university in food technology i started making wine and i brought wine into the curriculum and i got involved with reiner eschenbrock at ruakura so where was massey at that point that was palmerston north oh it was palmy okay yeah in the food tech yeah faculty or department. So I got involved with Reiner and uh, he uh, helped me organize a conference one year in the early 70s. And after the conference, he said, you should run a technical course here, a short course. And I said, oh, I don't know enough about winemaking to tell these guys. He said, you know a lot more than any any (laughs) New Zealand, most New Zealand winemakers. And he said, we'll provide some of the technical expertise as well from Rurikura. So he and David Sheet came so at that time, I mean, this is early 70s. Early 70s. Yeah. So we're talking wine in New Zealand, Muller Thurgau. Um, no. Not even that? Not really. Although uh, the first course I ran, it was 1975 by the time I got around to running this one week long course with Reiner and David and a couple of the uh, viticulturists from Rurikura. And we ran this wine course, and I found, yes, I did know a lot more. Mm. about wine than the majority you know i knew about malolactic and they hadn't heard of it and they didn't know really much about ph measurement for example mm. so you know we were able to go through useful fundamentals of winemaking for these guys now you ask about the grape varieties why i went back to that was in the evenings we would have sensory sessions brown bag sensory sessions and Ross and Bill Spence from Matua Valley came along to one of the first courses and I forget whether it was Ross or Bill who had the brown bag and produced a bottle and poured a white wine I was sitting at the table with him and four or five others we broke up into small groups to taste the wines and then report Mm -hmm. and I thought what on earth is this this is a white cabernet you know, mm. tasted, it tasted Sauvignon-like. It tasted mm. like Cabernet Sauvignon, but it was white. And he unveiled a bottle of Martour Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> so they're they listed as kind of the founders of it? They the are. Really yeah, the they founders. really are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know they advertise that, but that's yeah, basically yeah. what they are. Yeah. yeah, and so that was one of their first, if not their first, vintage of Sauvignon Blanc, and he produced it at the 
at the uh, conference. Now I know the or the the, the, sem- uh, the week long session. Mm-hmm. Now I know at, uh, Rurikura and Tikafata they were growing a variety of Sauvignons and Rieslings and so on, but this was my first exposure to this green tasting, yeah, herbaceous, yeah. stridently mm. acid variety and. I have to say, I didn't pick that as being New Zealand's winner at that point, <laughs> but it certainly opened my eyes and, uh, hey, what's this? And Rhino came and explained it all, and Ross and Bill explained it all, and uh, it was shortly thereafter that, of course, uh, Montana was doing their uh, purchasing of land down in Melbourne, did the plantings down there. I've got a certificate or a, a framed certificate somewhere saying I was one of the first planters. I was on one of the planting expeditions when they did a PR thing with all the media and you know as I said I had this radio program at one stage and I was writing my wine column so I got invited to a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. So yeah I saw that development and perhaps I should put into perspective we're a long way away from talking about China yet so I hope you've got plenty (laughs) of time but I remember going up to Rurikura once to see Rainer and I stopped at the Chartwell Shopping Centre at the far end, or the northern end of Hamilton, for lunch. And uh, went into the shopping centre and I was assailed by someone doing a promotion of wine, wine tasting. Now, I may have it slightly wrong, but I th- my recollection is tasting in the shopping centre itself. I can't imagine that being allowed today in terms of licensing laws. But I tasted this very fruity, very clean, mildly sweet white wine, which was so very easy to drink. And I wondered what on earth it was. And it was a thing called Bernkaisler Riesling. Bernkaisler Riesling. I think it survived about three years before the German industry came down and said, you can't call this Bernkaisler. <laughs> you know, this is New Zealand, not Germany. Yeah. So it was suitably renamed Ben Morven after that. And for a long time, this was the Muller-Turgau standard, if you like, for mainstream New Zealand wine drinking. And it was made with uh, Muller-Turgau grapes and back-blended muscat juice. Yeah, sweeten it up a bit. Sweeten it up and give it some fruit. Mm -hmm. You know, the muscat really added the fruit. And the wine had an alcohol content of 8.9%. So... You know, we talk about low-alcohol wines today. We had it back then. Yeah, we had it already. But it was in this back-blended, somewhat sweet, not not the saccharine sweet of New Zealand white wines of that era, but somewhat sweet, delightfully crisp and fresh. Mm-hmm. And it, it really changed New Zealand's approach to wine drinking. And it was a success. It was what propelled Montana to become the number one winemaker over McWilliams at the time. And McWilliams, uh, you know, going into a little bit of the sort of history, that became that's become something else now. Well, it, McWilliams used to be based here in Faraday Street yeah. in Hawks in Napier, and uh, they then joined Cooks uh, in the latter part of the seventies. Cooks Wine Company of Tikavara, and uh, then they uh, took over. Well. I've Tom McDonald seen... used to own Church Road. He yeah. that was the McDonald Cellars where Tom started, and of course he was the winemaker for McWilliams. So there's quite a tie up there, and ultimately uh, it was decided to close down Church Road by, by McWilliams. They closed it down and was put on the market, and by some clever work behind the scenes, Montana managed to buy it. I understand, without McWilliams really knowing that it was going to their opposition. Mm. And so then it became Church Road for Montana. 
So interesting. Stuff yeah, no, I was just thinking I've seen on I, I, when you said Faraday Street, I had some friends who were kind of shacking up there in like a student uh, squat almost. And, <laughs> and it was, I think, right across the street from the old facility and it's it's you know it's kind of worn down and covered with with uh ivy now and stuff but you could see at one point it was uh you know a little operation going on there it was really quite an establishment yeah yeah not exactly the most user-friendly site but Mm. uh, certainly was tucked away in the hillside there they had a rather nice still up there so they used to produce quite a lot of alcohol because new zealand in those days had an industry based around fortified wines as well sherries and ports so-called and they used to produce their own spirit. So anyway, that's sort of how I got started, and once bitten, there was yeah, no turning yeah, back. Yeah, you know, yeah. It just exploded from there. And so I got involved in wine research and went over to UC Davis for a sabbatic year, and I went to McWilliams Wines in the Hunter Valley to, for a vintage, and I uh, went to the Australian Wine Research Institute for a sabbatical session, and went to the Napa Valley and worked at Louis Martini Winery for sabbatical. So so what year have you been stopped over at Davis? Was that? Uh, 79, no, 79, 80, mm. around that era. So I was starting to crank around then, the industry oh, in California by years. then. Yeah, you and know. you know, luminaries like uh, Denny Webb and Vern Singleton, uh, and Kunky and Co. Kunky was just getting into his stride, and Singleton was very definitely, well, I'd, I will use the word at his peak, but hey, that peak lasted for a long time. And he's still <laughs> still contributing. So yeah, yeah. so the, the industry. Oh, and Roger Bolton had just arrived, and being an Aussie, and I was a Kiwi, we used to get together quite a bit. So mm. uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that was and Anne Noble. Well, I lived in Anne Noble's house for a while. She went off somewhere, and my wife and I and family we lived there and looked after her rabbit scooter, and I drove. <laughs> she lent me her BMW car. So yeah. Oh, always good. thought always thought that was a convenient name for the uh, to have in the industry the noble name yeah noble rock <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, no interesting times at Davis yeah uh, yeah good times at Davis I bet and all, and only until recently they've had this you know everybody thinks of it as this you know grand research center and everything but really only until I think two years ago or a year ago <laughs> they. They had just this tiny winery with un- uncontrolled temperature for all this research. It was and quite an eye to put it that yeah. way, but they had a rather nice underground um, cellar for storing all the experimental wines. And mm. Guyman used to do some great stuff with spirits and brandy, and I was with in Ed Crowell's lab, and I enjoyed, I think it was about Wednesday afternoon, we did brandy evaluation sessions and so forth. So, yeah, that'll turn oh. into a Thursday morning you might not <laughs> enjoy so much. All good stuff there. So. Uh, I I met a guy up in uh, Oregon named John Alden, and I, I meant to do a podcast with him. I'm sure I will do at some point. Uh, he's got a label called J. Alden Wines, and he uh, he went to Davis in the 70s, and he was telling me they had a still there that uh, was in full action all the time until I think they almost burnt down the place, and the fire company <laughs> told them they couldn't uh, use it anymore. Uh, so okay. it's it's not as I think that's a separate facility a these days. So. Uh, but yeah, so carry on. So you were uh, in California and then going to Australia to do research? Yeah, yeah, and then I got a French government scholarship to go to study winemaking in the wine industry in France, so that was quite nice. Mm. And that was in the early 80s. And um, what part of France was that? Oh, Bordeaux, Champagne, Loire. Cool. And uh, did initial orientation in Paris, and that was 
very difficult as you know springtime well yeah they say paris in the spring absolutely so hey am i complaining no Uh wine wine has taken me (laughs) yeah a lot of places like tuvalu 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 wow You know where Tuvalu no, is? where's that? Well, it's pretty close to the equator, kind of northwest of Fiji. It sounds like it's near the equator. Yeah. yeah. And it's, so it's an island? Yeah, an atoll, a group of islands. Oh, okay. The capital, Funafuti. Funafuti. Yeah, and I went there, not so much really for wine, although it was partly to investigate uh, potential for... Uh, alcoholic beverages including beer and that in itself is a long story so we won't go okay, down that okay. path but you know went to uh, to Valu to look at uh, beer manufacture and f- fermented coconut sap veg- uh, um, things and then mm. it has taken me to Samoa where I looked at making cream liqueurs like uh, Bailey's and I spent some time coconut cream and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. South Pacific rum so yeah. time in Fiji making fruit wines for the fruit wine maker there so you know, it's it's taken me around a fair bit of the country or yeah, the, the world, world, should I say? Yeah, yeah. And of course, more recently, China, mm-hmm. and so, and also, I suppose the last trip I did was off to Virginia. Uh, so, getting involved with fermented products in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And you said that's a little range that's more cider. And- I'm more involved with a company doing cider over in Virginia, but it hasn't stopped me from straying into the odd winery and tasting a few products and yeah, having th- a look at things I there. think it's, uh, well, it's certainly on track, but a matter of time in production size that Virginia's going to blow by New York. And if, I think if you talk to people in the U.S. and you say, you know, New York wine seems to have more of a reputation internationally, at least people know, they say, oh, that they grow a lot of wine there too. And it's like, yeah, but not, nobody buys it really outside of that area. Yeah. And, uh, but Virginia is starting to make some really good impressions you know and with washington dc and that sort of vibrant restaurant culture there well it's starting to do a little bit you know what you've got to think about is how attractive virginia is the appalachian mountains going through there the appalachian trail the tourist regime and the mecca there are quite a lot of the dot dot-com millionaires who live in that area mm. and there are sports stars movie stars who want to get away from the hollywood hills type zone and get a bit of privacy up on the uh the mountain area yeah, in the forest beautiful. of virginia it is absolutely fantastic and what two and a half hours from dc yeah so it's a it's a quick drive down for the weekend. So or Friday for those afternoon, guys, probably a flight. You yeah, know. well, yeah, helicopter <laughs> and well, chopper. Hey, you know. as I know, go to the Devil's Backbone uh, in, uh, in the, sort of near Nellysford, and I've been there when choppers have come in with patrons on board. So mm. yeah, as you say, they a can quick do flight it. and up near Cedar Cedar Green up uh, in the mountains. So yeah, it is. Yeah. It is all those things added up for success, and I think people sometimes think, well, you know. There's fantastic weather and soils, and it can't just be all that. It needs to be tourism and, well, and, and I think a, chefs you, and a tour, you know, just kind of attracting everybody, you know. And it's it's quaint. There's a bit of bluegrass, not quite Kentucky, but there's sort of bluegrass and pulled pork and all yeah. that sort of stuff. It's got the character, and some of the original country stores are country stores no, like we just awesome. don't know in new zealand yeah you know, the real genuine thing yeah where they stock everything from shotgun shells well, to virginia's got quite a big well what is a uh montessori or montessori or whatever it's the uh thomas okay. jefferson home oh yeah and he was a wine he had a huge wine collection and he was well into wines well you so. see you talk of thomas jefferson's home the apple supplier to the cider company 
that I work with uh, has their apples supplied by the, from the orchard surrounding Thomas Jefferson's home. Yeah, I think it's called... Carter, it? At the base of Carter Mountain. Yeah, Montes, Montessori oh, or something okay. like that, or Montessori. So, but you talk about uh, the future of Virginia wine, for example, and it's not going to be easy. It's not automatic. It's not on a plate. Not no. so much like California, for no. example. The climate is not as benign as California, not as favorable. Humidity can Humidity be high. Rainfall brutal. can be brutal there yeah. and right now they're experiencing record low temperatures i noticed the other day looking at the al jazeera uh, weather forecast for washington minus eight mm. that's yeah. quite cold enough my family's you. uh very much looking forward to, to reaching zero celsius it's there for the first time and, and that's well, it's a bit north of there in the philadelphia area yeah. but yeah it's been a it's been a brutal yeah they certainly have much more variability humidity there which is why they've uh, gone more towards Cab Franc and Viognier to be their varietals yeah. there. And this is something that I, as I've gone there a few times now, I think viticulture needs to be sorted, not just think they can grow any vine for all sorts of wine. That was the New Zealand approach of years ago too. You know, we'll put everything into Melbourne. And, you, and when Central Otago started, people were putting Cabernet in down mm. there too, Merlot. Why yeah. didn't they sort of do the homework? Well, the Virginia, they need to do the homework. And one way, of course, is to do the trials and see what works. Uh, but the industry there will be good. It will survive. It's expanding rapidly. I think there are 280-odd wineries there now. In yeah, well, like I said, I think it will get past New York. But it's a long way away from Washington, Oregon, and forget about California, you know. Yeah, but you see... Talking of Washington, they're very close to D.C. And what are the the wealthy people? The, the, and not just the wealthy, the upper mm. upper three-quarter mark. Well, there's a lot, they, of, money. There's a lot, lot of, of money in D.C. There's a there's huge no, amount of money no, in no, D.C. No, no, and no, I was no. talking about movie stars and sports stars and motor racing. They're, they and Phil Lobbyists. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they go down to uh, Virginia for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And then comes in the restaurant culture. The brewery culture, the beer culture, the side of the Applejack brandy. Yeah, I stopped in a couple um, uh, microbrews when I was driving through there last time. Brought my buddy some beer. Um, so it can all happen there. That's no yeah, Wild Wolf, owned by, well, run by the son of Mary Wolf, who was one of the dot commas of years mm. back. I won't say which aspect of which boom of the dot com era. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> so there is a, a lot of that sort of patronage. And consequently, uh, it's the industry will exist on wine tourism, and it's year-round because Wintergreen and other places are winter resorts, mm. and in summer it's golf and tennis. And when you go up to Wintergreen for a, I just I say that because I've been there a few times, but in summer it's that ten Fahrenheit colder than down below, so you can go up and play a game of golf and tennis and be cool. Yeah. Whereas it can be sweltering hot down in the valley. I'll bring that back to uh, Hawke's Bay in yes. that sense because – no, I'm just thinking because Hawke's Bay – I know we're getting far away with Virginia, but Hawke's Bay, I think that is one of the issues. I mean, we're making great wines. They've had some established brands or some history here. But uh, we do seem to be off the beaten tourist path sometimes. You know, people get all the way to New Zealand and they'll go Auckland, maybe cut through uh, Rotorua or something and straight down to Wellington if – yeah, I might shoot over to Martinborough for a little wine tasting, and then they're down to the South Island. And uh, Hawke's Bay is just a little bit east off there. They might even hit Taupo. And 
uh, to, you know, I think the important part is to get them here. Now we're, uh, almost, I can almost see the Napier airport out your window <laughs> there. And there's always this talk of, oh, well, we got to let them land bigger planes and we got to get more, more of this and that. But somehow, uh, it would be good, uh, to bring up the profile of Hawks Bay wines, whether we get those people here or the tourists or it happens in a different manner. Uh, it's certainly part of the equation that, uh, is to bring up, you know, not only places like the Giblet Gravels, but the Triangle and all these other great places growing wine. Well, I wind the clock back a little bit. 1980, when I got back from Davis and the Australian Wine Research, I became a consultant to Timata mm-hmm. uh, and was involved in the 1980 vintage with the Cabernet that later won a gold medal and the 81, 82, the Coleraine, the start of Coleraine and so mm-hmm. on. So for 12 years I was a consultant to Timata. And John Buck was... After Tom McDonald, John Buck would have been the best thing that happened to the Hawke's Bay wine industry, especially at, at that time. He was a vigorous promoter of Hawke's Bay, and of course that didn't hurt his image or mm-hmm. his image at all. And Hawke's Bay was the number one in New Zealand. But ultimately, of course, uh, we were making Chardonnay here, Cabernet here, that was really um, a me too Mm-hmm. Different, but me too. You could get great Chardonnay out of South Africa, California, parts of Australia. I remember taking one of the original 1980 Cabernets to Louis Martini in Napa when I was working there in 84. It might have been the 81, not the 80, but I took one of the uh, early tomato Cabernets, uh, Cabernet Merlots, and we sat around lunchtime on Fridays, I think it was, doing brown bag blind tastings Mm -hmm. and we had a lot of first growths and I put this Timata and when I saw the competition I thought whoa (laughs) how's this going to stack but it came in at around about fourth in the ratings amongst the the staff and the invited guests of this big lunchtime tasting and they were really impressed and it stood out Mm -hmm. as being different but it was rated alongside and I think Opus 1 was in there now you know it, it was good, and so I talked to Mike Martini and one of the uh, allied uh, what distributors. Martini's either owned or were part owners of a distribution company, and they said, yes, we could distribute this and sell this in the United States, uh, but we could only move a s- small amount, something like, or oh, probably a pallet or two per month. Well, I think at that time John's total production was about yeah, <laughs> three about, pallets or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but, you know, that was... That was great, and Hawke's Bay had profile, but we were ultimately rapidly overtaken by the fact that Marlborough Sauvignon was different, but good, mm. differently good yeah, yeah, to the rest of the Sauvignon in the world, whereas our Cabernets and Chardonnays, which were our flag bearers, really, at that point, and when I say Cabernets, I mean the Bordeaux varietal reds. I don't call them Bordeaux-style, they're Hawke's Bay-style reds, but based on Merlot and Cab, Cab, Sav, Franck. So uh, we were pushing it uphill a little bit to stand out in the world, especially when there were some really great uh, French and Californian cabs and some rather good Australian 
Red's cab and particularly Shiraz, and so we were fighting for a recognition. But when Sauvignon Blanc came along, a bit like that time with Ross and Bill, it just stood out. Mm. It was this, not exactly the sore thumb, but boy, it stood out. And uh, it established New Zealand, and with that we saw the uh, development of Marlborough. And strangely, when Montana bought Church Road here, I thought, yes, now we're going to see it. Here comes an international company with muscle. This is going to promote Hawke's Bay, New Zealand red wine, Hawke's Bay red, Hawke's Bay Chardonnay. It's going to be uh, more sort of strings to the bow of New Zealand. They're going to get behind, and this will be great. And there was a time when... I think overseas New Zealand was seen as, not New Zealand, but as Marlborough. Yeah. Or the variety Sauvignon Blanc was almost seen as a variety called Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. But I'm critical of Montana, rightly or wrongly, but I don't think they put much into promoting Hawke's Bay per se. They promoted Church Road, but even then it was always seemingly a second string or second fiddle to uh, the Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. Mm. Go to the UK as I did in those days and you would see... Montana, Marlborough, Sauvignon Blanc. And if there was a uh, Chardonnay, Montana Chardonnay, was the Hawke's Bay identity wasn't promoted, wasn't carried. It might have been a Marlborough Chardonnay, a Gisborne Chardonnay, Hawke's Bay. So Hawke's Bay just didn't quite keep up. Yeah, and it just it, kind of fell behind. Yeah, fine, fell behind. And as you say, we're out of the loop when it comes to tourism. And, you know, I was talking about Virginia and the survival of Virginia. I look at... The Hunter Valley, for example, two hours' drive from Sydney. Many a person has said the only reason why the Hunter survives, because they have hot weather, they have floods, they have humidity, kangaroos and snakes, um, <laughs> but they survive because people go there for the food culture, the wine tourism at the weekends. I know because I've made wine, I've lived in the Hunter, and that's what it's like. And it's almost like Martinborough, with the difference being... Martin Barrett makes some really genuine good wines, great wines, mm-hmm. but it's difficult, not easy, but it can survive and charge some of the higher prices because it's only a short drive over the hill from Wellington, and so mm-hmm. you get quite a lot of the civil servant brigade who either live in Featherston, Martinborough way, or drive over for the weekend. Yeah. And it's quite a good way to, quite a good place to take your friends. So, you know. When you look at Waiheke, how does Waiheke get away with... Auckland. Yeah, tourists. All, tourists. <laughs> all exactly. this big money from Auckland. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But where's our two-hour drive? Gisborne? It's not going to support <laughs> That's us. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Palmerston North Taupo, hasn't got the population. Uh, Taupo, yeah. 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 So we haven't got the sort of uh, population base or the sector of the population. You know, the, mm. the person who's got disposable income and an interest often goes and wine goes with disposable income mm-hmm. and so Hawke's Bay's got to really uh, establish its uh, existence based on the quality of its wines and establishing an identity and as we have discussed at other times what have we got we do Chardonnay rather well we do Cabernet in places rather well we do Merlot in more places pretty well Viognier has a a bit of a mark here. Mm. We've had this identity crisis. What about our Syrah? Syrah, 2% or 3% of the plantings, and yet we're using it as a flagship, or some wineries are using it as the Hawke's Bay flagship. Mm. So what is it? What's our identity? Yeah, it's all over the place. It is all over the place. Uh, trust me, i got my own brand, and I go through it too. And, and I have to paint, I would say, a different picture uh, because, yeah, I mean... 
I would say one of the greatest things that we grow here is Merlot, but it's also people grow great Merlot in a lot of other places, and and it's tough to compete at that at maybe those price points. And Merlot is not the hottest thing in the world right, right. now, and. Uh, same thing probably goes for Chardonnay, you know, but Chardonnay always seems to be consistent and does well, but you know, you talk to distributors and stuff, they say, don't bring me another Chardonnay. I got yeah. so many, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, it's, it's tough. And, and, and yet when I had crossroads, we got gold medals for Riesling, mm-hmm. gold medals for Cabernet and one year, a gold medal for Pinot Noir. Hawks Bay Pinot. Hawks Bay Pinot Noir. I've always said I like Talks Bay Pinot uh, more than I would say some other areas of of New Zealand. You know, probably more than some of the Canterbury ones or something like that. But it depends on the producer and things like that. You know. So we have this bit of an identity problem. Mm. What's our focus here? And should we have a specific varietal focus? Does yeah. it matter? But what we do need is to promote Hawks Bay as being a source of some very good standout wines. I guess it's similar to. I mean, Sonoma. Sonoma does a lot of different yep. things really well. Um, you know, there's good, you know, I've had great Pinots from Sonoma. I've had, and it's a pretty big area as well. I mean, if we start considering what Central Hawks Bay contributes to the wine industry. It's, it's pretty large area of, yeah, of growing yeah. and and really different, you know, when you, you would think what's the difference between you know, some of the wines out on the coast here to some of the wines in Estale to the Giblet Gravels to Crown Thorpe now has become uh, its own sort of appellation. Yep. And yep. that's way different than, than anything else out there. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. Now going back a second to, you mentioned Crossroads. When did you start there or am I skipping over a huge little? Oh, no, no. It was always in the, in the back of my mind. And in fact, in 1981, I'll say, when I was in Paris, I met with a former Massey University staff member who had established a business in Belgium, of all places. Nothing to do with wine. He was to do with computer programming of weaving looms. Okay. And he was doing quite nicely, thank you. And we were sitting in Montmartre one Sunday morning having a cup of coffee when uh, I said to him, well, what are you going to do when... When you finish up here, you know, you're going to retire here or you're going to come back home? He said, oh, I'll come back home. I said, well, you know, when you've had enough and come back home, made your fortune, you always need fortune, uh, let me know because we could start up a winery. He said, good idea. Hmm. So around about Easter 89, I think it was a good Friday morning at about 4 o'clock in the morning, my phone went. Are you serious? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> Were you serious? Uh, sorry, who? Who? Oh, it's Lester here, Mac. Uh, uh, just wondering, were you serious? I said, about what? <laughs> is it about the winery? I said, yes, of course. Do you realise what day it is and what time it is? Uh, no, what is it? And so forth. So that was the, the starting point. He said, well, I'm coming back in a week and I'll come and see you and we'll go and have a look. That's cool. So... He was back. We came up here, had a look around Hawke's Bay. We talked about Martinborough. We talked about Melbourne. I said, who the heck wants to go to Melbourne? No tour, wine tourism down there. And Hey, it's a, it's a one horse. Who wants to? Mm. You, hey, you've got to make decent red, and you won't make decent red down there. I didn't mm. even think of Pinot. And uh, I said, no, you've got to come up here, look at John Buck with Timata and so on. So we decided 
to come up here, thinking there was going to be more wine tourism and mm. and we could do the cab, the Merlot thing and the Chardonnay thing. Mm-hmm. So that's how it got started. And then how far along uh, the way did you, you started, uh, well, the famous blend? The famous blend. Well, that was a topic of conversation with a good friend of mine at Massey, Bob Chong, Robert Chong, Chinese-Australian. Smallish guy, deep voice, who really liked his Aussie Reds. He was an Aussie-born Chinese. He really liked and He could tuck them away, too, fairly subtly for a guy of his size. And we used to drink Aussie Reds, and we'd drink New Zealand Reds, and the greenness of many New Zealand Reds came up. And we used to talk about what we could do to make a non-green red. Mm. So a bit of research between us, and we came up with the blend. And uh, so we imported the uh, varieties from uh, different parts of the world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, we planted them out to do some trial work. And, um, yeah. So uh, the the five... For the five vari- five varietals, right? Yeah, five, six, six originally. Six originally. Yeah, originally. Yes. What were the original six? Oh, I'm not telling. You. Oh, well, you, oh I've never right. told anyone. You no. never told. I thought you said the varietals, but you didn't say the mm. percentages or something. Oh no, no, never, never said. And hey, I don't own the company now, and I don't really have too much of a reason. But hey, why, why? No, I I've think held I think it's, it for this long. I think it's some cool. people know because I know when we sold the winery, the people who took over suddenly started to blat it. Out until I told them to shut up. Yeah, yeah. Don't, pu- don't spoil your, your mystery. No, that's So great. some people out there do know, but uh, uh, and it has changed a bit in terms of composition and percentages. But this is evolution. You know, yeah. I don't think uh, Chateau Latour got it right to start with either. No, uh, but I'm still very happy. Those uh, early talismans are still very much alive. Yeah, the talismans well. kind of. I know uh, some people who have worked there, and they've said, no, we won't say, you know, we won't tell. No. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, it's part of it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's cool. I've got the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we will never know. I think they even, even said he signed something saying he won't, he won't say it, yeah. what it is. Well, funnily enough, I wasn't required when I sold the winery and I stayed on for a while and ultimately obviously left. Uh, I, they didn't ask me to sign anything, but I thought, well, why ruin it? Yeah. I'm not going to spoil the story. No, no, I think it's cool. It's it's well, we're talking about it right now. It's something I heard about, not even from you. You yeah. know, it's oh, they, it's like the secret. Oh, they don't say what's in there. Yeah. I don't know. It's cool. That's a good way to do it. And I the think. Funny you know? thing is, I've had a few viticulturists through the vineyard, and funnily enough, I'm growing some of the varieties here at home too. But uh, and they look and oh, don't know that, don't recognise that. But they and they all agree the wine is pretty good. And I remember. Uh, Oh, who's the guru out of Australia from uh, down Yarra Valley? Smart or what? No, 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 the wine writer. Oh, I'm not sure. Pino Noir, his senility is setting in early, Malcolm. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to remember. I want to say Robert Parker, but he's American and so on. But anyway, the Australian Australian wine writer uh, tasted it one day and... uh, he said, this is a standout. I don't know what it is. I don't quite know what about it is that it appeals, but it's just different and it's it's good. Yeah, and yeah. he gave it a, a very high numerical rating. Not that I'm into single point scores, you know. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to uh, – well, that whole yes. thing is, is a tough part of the industry to sort of grapple with and take a hold of when you produce a wine and 
there's certainly an art to producing it. There's technical side and there's, you know, the, the physical side, side and all that. And then when you have somebody kind of put a number on it, it's a pretty tough thing. But I think, unfortunately, consumers respond to that and they they want to say, well, is this good or is this mm-hmm. bad? And, uh, you know, they want to, they don't feel like taking the time to read the whole article. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They just give me the number. Yeah, exactly. Because then I know I should like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's, yeah, we've done some. Well, probably with you, we've done some blind tasting stuff where you go, you know, you're not looking at what bottle you're pouring and all of a sudden you go, oh, that's just as good as the $100 one and this is the $15 one. Oh, yeah, 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 it happens. Yeah. So so then you were at Crossroads for 10 years, 15, 20? 12, 12 years all up, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and that would have been an interesting time as well in Hawke's Bay. Oh, heavens, yes. I mean, just a... A very big change in viticulture at that time and, and Absolutely, you quality know, booming up and everything. Well, you see, to show you how poor my judgment is, I remember driving through Highway 50 by what was in the drag strip in the dump yeah. out of Fern Hill, you know, uh, in an area called, well, we now call it Gimlet Gravels. It had really sort of no name. It was Wasteland. Yeah. And it was earmarked for cheap housing in those days and just as well they didn't put houses on it because it would have been hell to uh, try and establish gardens or anything on the the place it wouldn't have been a good housing settlement area and I used to drive through there and I heard people say oh we'll establish a winery down here or vineyards I thought no 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 I'm going to have crossroads up up the way by seven or eight k's more on the other side of Fern Hill much more attractive much better for for tourism this this was sort of like a godforsaken weed patch out there desolate wind hot wind and the smell of the dump and i remember seeing rotting hq holden car bodies and bumpers by the roadside sort of thing and nothing seemed to grow and i thought imagine setting up a vineyard here and trying to grow some decent grapes would be it's just too hard it's just pure rock mm. and i could have bought that land at that time for nine hundred dollars an acre oh. you know a couple of thousand a hectare <laughs> exactly no. instead i paid much more for up around uh where we were in Corakipo road and yeah so that was sort of in 89 and that was when john o'connor bought most of uh, the gimlet gravels for mm. Uh, a song, so to speak. Yeah, uh, yeah. John O'Connor. He was the Matariki. Matariki. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. An ex-all is... black Ford and Waikato rugby player. And okay. so on, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was yeah, like I said, an interesting time. Sort of uh, late '80s, early '90s, mm. coming into Hawke's Bay. A lot of probably new vineyards popping up. Not a newest, from what I can tell. Mm. The '90s were. Uh, a big time in oh, Hawke's Every Bay. week a new winery in New Zealand and Hawke's Bay went from around about, I'll say, 10, 12 recognised cellar doors to something in the late uh, 2000s, approaching 40. Today we claim kind of 60, but many of those are just labels. Just brands. Brands, yeah. 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 And... Uh, the region as far as food and restaurants just a couple here and there a couple and, here and there although but were they growing as much was there much as much orchards and well, farms that, and all that was that? the era of the winery restaurant okay and we intended putting a restaurant in at crossroads it was 
one of our thoughts. I'm glad we didn't. Mm. Uh, that was also the start of the drink drive and cracking down on nighttime drinking. And so the winery restaurant thing uh, started to lose its popularity to some extent. And then people with bigger budgets came and set up places like Cellini and Craggy Range with far fancier restaurants. And uh, it, it were good ones at Tiawa and Brookfields. But again, I looked at it and said, what's core business? Do we want to be involved in the restaurant trade? And you hear how uh, chefs can be prima donnas and so on. It's really tough. I don't... I I think it's uh, tough enough to start a winery, and it's just like a whole other problem to take on. You yeah, know? And, exactly. So yeah. we opted out of the the restaurant development, and I'm not unhappy that we did. I think that was a good move in hindsight. <laughs> for once, it, for, for yeah, once. for maybe skipping over the giblet gravels, <laughs> not but you know, yeah. not doing a restaurant because I mean I've seen productions be dragged under. You know, yeah. by stuff like that. Yeah. So. Well, Sacred Hill had their restaurant up the Dartmoor Valley as well. Mm. So, yeah, that's a bit of a drive yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so then uh, you leave Crossroads. Yeah, and uh, it was a case of well, what do you do now? And I considered going back to Palmerston North, back to Massey, and I thought oh, I'll work for another three years and retire. <laughs> and when my wife and I talked it over, we really didn't want to leave the Hawke's Bay lifestyle. Yeah, it's great here. Great it weather. Great you know? weather. You know, it's Rather better than Palmerston yes. North. And yes. so we decided to stay put. And I figured, well, there's this establishment, Eastern Institute. Knew a little bit about it, not a huge amount. Knew some of the people there. And as it, as it happened, I had a good contact in the wine school, the manager at the time. So I fronted up to him and said, have you got any jobs going? Oh, heck, we're just advertising. I hadn't seen the advert. Mm. We're just advertising. Uh, here, sign this document almost. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so although it was a huge drop in salary from the industry to EIT, I was looking at, oh, yeah, I'll stay there three years. and um, uh, uh, Ten years, what, 15 years later? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, about 11, 12 years later, I'm looking at finally retiring. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, look, I've made some good friends with students and the fact that there have been uh, more than a modicum of, I'll call it, semi-mature, mature students, you know, the, the, the older age group, the slightly yeah. older age group, the, not uh, the school leaver. The second career, career people. or third or fourth yeah, career. Yeah, and I maybe. could relate to that, having a few second careers in a way. Mm -hmm. And despite not exactly enjoying some aspects of the education world, that aspect of the tertiary education world, uh, the teaching side was good. And uh, there were certain opportunities to do a little bit of research, not easy, but also to travel a bit overseas from time to time, again, not easy because the Polytech Technical Institute system is completely different to the university Yeah, it's system. very drawn out and sporadic and, yeah, uh, yeah it's kind of all over the place. So. But, uh, yeah, then Accommodating I, the traveling or working student, I should say, yeah. yeah. And there's much more emphasis on student teaching than there is on research, and this was so totally different to my experience at Massey. Yeah, uh, I didn't really want to necessarily linger particularly long at EIT, you know, retire and enjoy retirement. But then 
Uh, I got kind of involved into this Chinese thing. And that came through? EIT. EIT. Yeah. Establishing links. Again, actually through a Massey contact, Massey has links with this university in China and the Chinese asked if they did any wine teaching at Massey and the guys at Massey said, well, uh, no, but we know where there is one. Yeah. Uh, we know a guy who's... We got a guy. Uh, we got a guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so... So where was that school in China? Uh, Beijing at China Agricultural University, which is probably about the fifth or sixth rating university in Beijing when you think of that as being 20 million people and all the universities there more than in New Zealand. That's uh, a very high rating university. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, geez, I mean, I don't, almost know where to start. Uh, I am actually working for a Chinese company now myself, so I'm getting a little more interested, a lot more interested. Um your first trip there uh, was... As part of a EIT delegation, we were invited by the Chinese to go and visit the facilities, and they took us on trips around a few of the vineyards in the general area, the, the Herbei area through uh, just past the, the uh, Badalung Great Wall area, and then they, we went uh, down to Shandong Yangtai uh, area, for, uh, which is... I suppose the traditional home, if not the really ancient traditional home of wine in China, but the traditional home started around about 1895 or so. Uh, with that German was the first... first sort of commercial winery of uh, a wine style that could be recognised as being kind of uh, grape wine-like. There were grape wines made, but and there's a lot of history about varieties being brought over from Europe and from... Uh, uh, a or the t- Turkey and yeah, that sure. sort of era, area yeah, there's Persia plenty and so of forth. plenty of Greeks yeah, yeah. that have come up from there and but I think Gen- know, Genghis Khan would have uh, exactly been, Marco Polo yeah, and, uh, you know, they would have had some trade routes exactly. going you know well, up and down the Silk Route and so yeah, forth yeah. and so yeah grapevines have been brought in and there is a a real history going back a thousand or more years um, of wine making, but also in China, wine can mean a lot of things. Uh, sort of okay. the rice wines and fruit yep. wines, and even spirits sometimes is referred to as. So, wine. do they call it? You know, to this day, does it have a? You know, do you have to make that distinction? I know you, yep. we might say rice wine, but when you say just wine, there uh, more and more wine is understood to be. Uh, the great wine but when you look at a wine list you need to be a little bit careful that when you see yellow wine you think oh this is old great wine that's gone yellow no that is normally a a form of rice wine yellow wine so that is a separate listing and that is not to be confused with the high strength 50 percent 55 percent baiju this is a a rice wine and are they growing traditional varietals there Yes. So Cabernet, they're like... They are doing a little bit of the, I'll call it the Virginia thing, the central Otago thing of years ago. Uh, Throw everything in the ground. And see what happens. See what happens, (laughs) and we're going to try and make it work. and so just as Hawke's Bay has everything from Gewurztraminer to Pinot Blanc to Chasselas, well, no, Chasselas is gone, but, you know, there was a little bit of Chen, and a lot of sorting out needs to be done. But the main red there is still very much Cabernet, so, or the main wine, the main grape variety is Cabernet Sauvignon. And they got the heat to do it there? 
they've got the heat and they've got the cold. They've got the cold not to do it and they've got the heat to do it in some respects. But as we often remark about the hot areas of of Australia and central California, you can have it too hot. Okay. And I've I've been over in the far west, Jinxian, and there it's just too hot, yet they grow Chardonnay and Riesling and it has the living daylights cooked out of it. Yeah. And even the Cabernet just comes across as being too hot and clumsy. But the climate is dry, the land is cheap, the grapes grow with, the, you know, when I say the climate is dry, less than 100 millimetres of rain a year. Mm. So, But they've got water from the Herland Shan Mountains and... Uh, uh, whoops, no, that's uh, uh, in Xinjiang they've got water from Tian Shan mountains and uh, so they have irrigation water. Oh, that's good, so, yeah, if they need it, yeah. But, but really uh, it's a, it does well as a table grape growing region and of course that is also a mixture of religions. There's a fair bit of Muslim influence. Vegas would cause a little bit of instability politically but leaving that aside... They are expanding the grape growing industry there, but uh, it's a case of finding varieties and growing techniques that will produce a, a grape that will. Produce I mean, it's a, a, ma- a it's a massive country, wine. so it'd be oh. just like anything else. It'd be so many different micro regions and places, but it's well, just a matter of whether they're going to try it and where the open land is at this point, where there know. isn't so many people, I guess. <laughs> well, in July this year, I was up in the northeast, Jilin right on the boundary with North Korea. Across the river I could see North Korea, the soldiers marching up and down with their machine guns, Mm. I think keeping their population in rather than keeping anyone out. Most definitely. (laughs) Yeah, up in Jilin they have the Vitus amurensis, and currently, well, that's the same area as they have the ice sculpting and uh, minus 20 degrees, but the native grape variety, Vitus amurensis, is cold-tolerant and it ripens. It has a lot of the diglucoside, uh, anthocyanin content, and they've got um, a wine industry based on the amurensis. And what uh, kind of wine is that? Is it's that, a red wine, a deep red. And is it, as far as difference between, say, Vitis Labrusca, Vitis Vinifera? Is it's it, closer to Vinifera than it is to Labrusca, but it's, or maybe, I haven't tasted Muscadine. You may have tasted Muscadine. Yeah. It's possibly yeah. more akin to a Muscadine. Like it's a bit hard. Foxy to, stuff. No, it's, a, it's foxy, but not foxy. It's not mm, the same. Not as heavy it's, on. It's, yeah. yeah. But I visited a vineyard alongside a hydro lake at some quite some elevation because the hydro lake had to drive in a hydroelectric station, so it has to have elevation to drive that. Mm. And I would have to go back to my notes to see just how high up in the mountains it was in China. And this is a, a joint hydro facility with North Korea, so it's sort of it's related to the border again. But I went to the this Chinese vineyard there, and they have got Amurensis vinifera crosses. Okay. So they're crossing the native grapes with... Cabernet with Muscat with Pinot with no is that rootstock to uh, or or literally like cross crossing yeah Yeah. okay and uh, I've just finished writing a paper with the Chinese on on some of the aspects of the uh, uh, expression of 
the anthocyan and genes in the mm. uh, in these grape varieties. We won't go down that path now. That's a different podcast. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the wine geek, total geek podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they they're producing growing grapes up there, and they're almost shotgun style, cross everything with everything to dry and breed in cold hardiness. Mm. The amurensis is extremely resistant to fungus because it's so darn wet up there, mm. and yet it gets hot and humid. It's got a very short growing season, but it ripens in time. So, you know that's what they're doing in Jilin. Then uh, over in Gansu, they've got the whole province is organic in terms of grape growing. They've got big expansion programs there, growing Cabernet and Chardonnay, but principally Cabernet organically. Nincha, which is slightly northeast of of, uh, Gansu, but decidedly inland, we're talking 11, 1200 k's from from Beijing. Mm. Cabernet, and uh, it's dry climate irrigation again. The wine industry is expanding rapidly, and it's what... Three times the size of the New Zealand wine industry now. And uh, the consumer there is is uh, varied, I would say. Is uh, all that, over the I place. was wondering what you, where you were leading with this, because uh, I, I what mean, is I, the average consumer? There's no there such thing as one, average. Yeah, yeah. I just read your article in the Hawke's Bay magazine and mm-hmm. how you know, pricing and how it reflects towards, uh, you know, what it's wine's price status here in New Zealand to there or other markets in like the UK and, you know, what the average drinker is like. Or Yeah. Well, you see, a couple of years ago I was in Gansu and I went to a vineyard and spoke with the vineyard manager and I said, how much do you pay your workers here? And he said, oh, during winter, about 100 yuan a day, and during uh, summer and vintage, when days are longer, we pay 200 yuan a day. Now, when you realise there are 5 yuan to the New Zealand dollar, that's $20 a day rising to $40 a day. Okay, sitting in a restaurant on the banks of the river going through Shanghai, as I sat and looked at the wine list and I saw Timata Elston Chardonnay listed at 385 yuan, uh... what does that kind of tell you about the wine-drinking capacity, disposable income of the vineyard worker in Gansu? It doesn't exist. It's not going to exist. On the other hand, visiting a supermarket just near the university where I have this visiting professorship in Beijing, uh, the lowest priced wine was something like, I'll say, 19 yuan a bottle. Now, that was some from the Great War. I think there might have been actually a 13 or 14 yuan bottle, but I saw this 19 yuan, 20 yuan bottle. And on one occasion I went into the supermarket and the Great Wall Winery Restaurant sales lady was there and she was doing a tasting promoting and so I said oh I'd like to try some of your wine and uh, I said can I try that one oh no 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 I wouldn't want to show you that one I said why not oh it's not really proper wine not really good (laughs) I said why do you have it out (laughs) why do you have it out and uh, uh, that was and 
I'm, I, my recollection is not entirely accurate. It was either 100 or 200 yuan per bottle, and she was saying, no, no, I'd rather you didn't try that one. I'd prefer you'd try this one, and the top-priced wine was just under 300 yuan, and she wanted me to try that one. But really, you should try that one, pointing to the 385 one on the shelf. Uh, hmm. And... So when she wasn't around, I bought some of the 20 yuan to take back to my hotel and just try it. Yeah, um. I'm glad I didn't pay much for it. <laughs> yeah. And therein, I think, lies a bit of a problem for the Chinese industry because they don't have a wine-drinking history or culture. Mm-hmm. They Many do not have a large disposable income. They hear about wine how wine is the thing to drink. This is what civilized people drink. This is what people who have made the grade drink. Sure. So when you haven't got a large disposable income, and realize Beijing, Shanghai, there are some significant, huge disposable incomes there. But I know the university staff get paid a fraction of what we get paid here, albeit it is quite a good salary there. So they can buy a useful amount of wine, okay? But wine, all the same, at 100 yuan a bottle is a bit like saying, when did you last buy an $80 bottle, Daniel? Yeah. Yeah. I try not to. I try to get them given to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't so, really. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I purchased an $80 bottle. I think I've given up buying Grange these days. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, but I used to. Uh, but, you know, over there, the, I'll call it the interesting wines, 100 plus yuan a bottle which can be starting to get into a bit of quality. <coughs> Wait, so go back, range, 100 yuan is 20 bucks. 20 bucks okay. Now, that's more, more like 100 bucks to them, mm. like 20 bucks to us. Yep. And so if you're a novice wine drinker and it's not in your culture and you see 20, 30, or say 14, 15 yuan, 20 yuan, uh, 30 yuan, up to 800 yuan, sort of thing, hmm, where do I start? And you haven't got a lot of money. So you buy some of the cheaper stuff, you taste it, and you think, what are they raving about? Why? Meanwhile, sitting on the shelf not far away, if you want an alcohol kick, and I'm very much against this aspect, but if you want an alcohol kick, there's Baiju, a 200 ml little baby bottle of Baiju, 53%. So you're looking at over 100 mils of alcohol, right? Wow. Sitting at three... 0.5 0.5 yuan a bottle. So if you if you are chasing an What's alcohol that stuff? effect, what is that? It's is made it? from rice, sorghum, millet, whatever you know. Uh, it's like a grain barley. Grain barley. It's a, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a whiskey. It's, it's a, whiskey. a it's a white spirit. But call it a whiskey. The Scots would have my guts for garters. Wow. Uh, but I've got. I'll show oh, you. Oh, is that up. the stuff they make you? Yes, everybody does. Uh, yeah, yeah. They do the big shots to around the yeah, yeah, table, yeah. and if you're visiting, gambe, gambe. gambe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've done about a few this. of those, and they can write you off quick smart. But yeah. anyway, this stuff. If you're after alcohol, and I like to distance wine from alcohol if I can, but if you're after alcohol, then this is a hell of a lot cheaper. Hundred mils of alcohol for three point five yuan, whereas you. And they, they're used to it. They drink it. So why buy this? It's tough to compete, yeah. Yeah. Now, this is quite, this may not even apply, but, uh, and, and might not even apply for, you know, a wine drinker in China, but what about 
food and wine? Is there an approach to say, hey, well, you know, we have this, I, I'm just, I don't know, you know, obviously regionally the food might be different in every area, but you say, hey, we have this really cool, uh, can't you know Cantonese and or this kind of food that's real spicy, and it goes really well with big dark Cabernet Sauvignon. Is that even enter the conversation? Is not really yeah. no, because when you go even to with a giant, the affluent and the, well, the affluent will eat in a in a fusion restaurant mm-hmm. or a Western style restaurant, and the, okay. And hey, I've had nice Cabernet with Beijing duck, Peking duck, as still call it Peking duck, yeah. and the dryness of the tannins go very well with the oiliness of the of the uh, the skin of the, of the duck and so forth. So, yeah, there is a bit of matching, some matching opportunities. But when you're sitting down at a table and you've got everything from watermelon and tomatoes through to sea cucumber, duck's intestines, uh, river fish, sea fish... Uh, you name it, it's there. Pork dishes, chicken dishes, some Sichuan star with the uh, Sichuan star with the uh, uh, chilies in it. How do you do food matching when you've yeah. got half a dozen different flavors? So that's their idea. It's like give you all these different things, and that's yeah, sort of the extravagant of meal, and which yeah. is kind of cool to, if it's small plates and mm. stuff to eat like that. But I used to joke around with my buddies in Napa who are making these they're back to eighty hundred dollar cabernets. And I'd say, you guys are joking yourself. Don't go to the French Laundry. The best food pairing is is the Mexican food here that's real cheap and spicy and big and bold. And it's the only thing. You can't eat steak for dinner every night. And that's the only other thing that can hold up to your giant 15 16% Cabernet. So yeah, yeah. I like to pair it with, you know. And luckily, I was in a situation where I was living with a couple of winemakers. So they would have some some big cabs laying around. And i say, the only food that consistently holds up to this is a nice burrito from up the road. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like that too much. But, right. <laughs> but I'm thinking along the same lines as, um, you know, New Zealand, we do have some some uh, some local matches and some things, you know. We- yeah. And, you know, I can imagine at home where the food can be toned down a little bit and not necessarily spicy. And there's quite a bit of, I'll call it the cabbage type vegetable mm. and rice and maybe plainer style fish. Then wine would go more readily but with some of the dishes wine would be a waste yeah but when you've got a lot of money as many chinese many of the well-paid chinese do uh it's about show as well yeah and so you want to turn on the good stuff it is a status thing oh i keep hearing that about but of course the latest dictate from the premier is tone down the status and the fancy dinners and so on and uh, uh so the extravagant lunches and dinners with fancy wines and for that matter fancy yeah the budget. whole gifting thing right i would hear that as a big oh huge big thing industry for wine yeah. over there was, or has been but now it's stopped we'll yeah see, this, this yeah. new guy has, and, has stopped it is it, for people listening don't understand there was a you know an industry of uh, i'm sure new zealand took advantage of it as well as you know many other wine growing areas of the world where they say, well, do you have a distributor and can you establish the market? And they say, no, we could just sell it all to one company and they would gift it as, I don't know, Christmas gifts or whatever yeah, you want to call yeah. it. And, and they might take two pallets of your wine to do that's so right. or something. And, and, oh, uh, yes. So you're, that, that's kind of tailed off a bit now. You know, if we had more time, the things I could tell you about, and I mean good things, I'm not meaning scandal or anything, but the, the large 
sellers that I saw that belonged to the big companies. Well, tell me a little. Company. Tell me a little. Well, you know, you go, <laughs> you go through a winery in Shandong and they've got these underground cellars with a main corridor and drives off to the side. And this drive, um, um, I wouldn't call it a mini cellar, it was a, a room about... Uh, the size of that room there, mm. and it's lined with wines that belong to the company, and they just buy, as you say, the vintage and from the from the winery, and they go and get their wines out of that winery. Yeah. They keep them down there, and there's there is a main Hallways hallway <laughs> with drive after drive after drive Jeez. off to one side with locked gates, wrought iron gates. I could show you photos and of collections belonging to different companies, yeah. and Big, big bucks, big, yeah. big bucks. Yeah. And I just wonder whether they'll ever get around to drinking all the wine that they've bought. But maybe it's a status thing to have bought this. Now, some of that is going to be toned down because it's seen as not the right thing. Just as the first growth prices have collapsed tremendously, dropped by perhaps a third as a result of the dictates of the Premier. And this has impacted on the sales of New Zealand wine in, uh, in China. Look, don't tell me, I, I won't tell you, rather, mm. I won't tell you that it's collapsed, no. But the growth has just slowed somewhat. It's it's more difficult, and well, um, we may you know we may have to really get our our heels in, dig our heels oh, in, and, sure. and and actually, but you know you're not just looking to them to clean up and buy a bunch of uh, pallets of it, but you may actually have to try to establish the market there. Oh, now, you know? and it's a huge, as we know, one point three billion or whatever. Mm. Now there's no point carting New Zealand wine to the far west to Xinjiang where the annual salary is low. No, you hit Hong Kong, Guangzhou, uh, Shanghai and uh, Beijing for a kickoff, and then maybe the, some of the other towns, Xi'an and the like, where there is, there are, there is a significant proportion terms. of people who have got real, real money. And you target your market, you work with your distributor, you work with wine shops, uh, and you select where you're going to sell it. You don't sell it at the corner store along with their baiju and the odd bottle of Great Wall at 50 yuan or 30 yuan, you sell it in the places that hand sell the wines to their clientele. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some superb wine shops, Pudar Wines in Shanghai and Beijing, uh, take a lot of beating to go and visit them and see their wines under nuts and on the tap, you know, on pourers, and you can you pay anything from fifteen yuan for a taste to thirty yuan for a drink to a uh, hundred yuan for a real glass or mm -hmm. more. And yet, at the same time, we have to realise. I went into a bar in Shanghai with a Kiwi friend, a wine bar, Doctor Wine, and I paid fifty six yuan, call it eleven bucks, for a glass of. New Zealand, non I'll call it nondescript, brandless New Zealand. In other words, it wasn't a recognised brand for me. It was yeah. some, something created for something whatever created reason. For China, yeah. Whether it was a yeah, who created the brand, who knows? But I, it was it was a fair enough wine, but it wasn't anything startling. Now, eleven bucks doesn't sound like much. I pay that downtown here, mm -hmm. except fifty six yuan is more like fifty six bucks, yeah. or at least forty bucks for them. Yeah. For them, and the. And in that wine bar, there were expats who were drinking. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a few, a handful, maybe four or five Chinese people, but there were a lot of 
European-looking people, whether they were from Europe, the States, New Zealand, yeah, or where, I don't yeah. know. But it wasn't at that stage when I visited there, and it was what, midweek, Thursday, um, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night, um, when you'd expect it to be firing. And I was in the French Quarter, you know, with a name like Dr. Wine. This wasn't just some backyard alley down the Hutong. Yeah. Uh, this was in a, sort of a fashionable area, uh, and it wasn't overcrowded, and it wasn't patronised by the milling throng. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, as I say... I remember it well, and it wasn't the the most expensive. It was one of the cheaper ones, and I bought it because it was a New Zealand Sauvignon, and I wanted to see how that looked, that particular one. Uh, but it was quite a pricey sort of a wine. Hmm. And I don't want to say that good or bad, but what was probably the craziest thing you've seen there, maybe on a massive scale? You've shown me pictures before of giant winemaking facilities or things like that. You know, I'm not... Because uh, it sounds like you've done a pretty good amount of travel around there. Uh, uh, yeah. But just something that, you know, maybe open folks' eyes to uh, with the growth and things like that that's happening there. If you don't have any. Uh, yeah, yeah, fun, yeah. Well, I, I won't talk about the winery that I visited down in Yunnan where there were signs posted, beware of the landslide. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we'll leave that aspect aside. That's, that's some of the nice little things. But I suppose you could say one of the craziest things, seemingly, was visiting a winery, uh, sorry, a vineyard in Yunnan um, at around about 3,000 metres, maybe 2,800 metres. We're in the tropics, realise, so we're up at 2,000 metres, and here are these little pocket handkerchief vineyards on the hillsides and around the, the settlements in the town along the river valley. They're growing Cabernet there. And in between the rows, and I, this really doesn't, wasn't just Yunnan, but there were crops of uh, beans, sweet corn and so forth growing into row for into row competition. Uh, well, not really into uh, row competition, just, vigour adjustment. Yeah. It was, hey... Grapes are a crop. Yeah. And so up in Jilin this year, they had peanuts growing between the rows of the grapes. Hmm. Just because you make use of every bit of ground you can to produce food. So that would mean they're obviously not on some sort of a tractor or spray regimen if, if they've got a lot of... Well, the way you spray the vineyard is you have a motorized tank at the bottom of the hill and a dirty long hose on, and a spray gun in your hand and you walk up the hill and then go down the rows and the, the sprayer pump is working down the bottom sending you the spray. Mm. All right. Well, they, you know, one thing... I guess they have there that we don't have as much here as people to do Which is a lot of jobs. Just yeah. as well, because when you have to bury the vines, as you need to in winter, uh, well, there are now motorized versions of mechanical. Uh, they bury the vines. Bury the vines. So yeah. they, they trim them back first? And then... Trim them back to maybe a couple of meters because uh, they'll bring those back up. Not as full cane, uh, not, a, not a cordon as we know, not a heavy cordon, but a, more like a, a cane. Mm-hmm. And they'll bring those back up. But, but digging them up is a little more, a little trickier to yeah. do than to... Try not to dig the whole thing up, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they don't bury a long cane. They'll just leave maybe 14 to 20 buds on the crown buried and hope that six One or shoots. seven of them will, will survive. Yeah. Uh, viticulture is... Com- 
totally different. Uh, I guess so, burying vines. Burying the vines and uh, then bringing them back up and training them along the vine. Recently, they've been looking at how they position the the vine trunk so that instead of, as we would have it, growing vertically 90 degrees out of the ground, they grow it at about 45 because then to bend it down to lower it into the ground is a lot easier oh. so you don't have the same stress. So you bring the trunk up at 45 and then grow the cordon or the, the, the cane along the, the vine. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so you know. Irrigation, not much drip, a lot of flood irrigation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, call them crazy, call them different. Uh, they got to do what they got to do, so, though. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, cool. Um, I'm sure we keep going, but uh, I think we're uh, we're doing pretty well. We just blew through about an hour and sixteen hour and seventeen minutes. So, um, yeah, I'd like to. Uh, you mentioned before doing some sort of oral history of Hawks Bay wine, and I, that's something I'd like to talk to you more about. But thanks for doing this and uh, sharing your Sunday morning with me. You know, amidst uh, what'll hopefully be another great vintage here in Hawks Bay. It will be a good vintage. I think it's going to be a good one. Yeah. So thanks, Malcolm. Uh, Is there anything that you want to plug or have people check out that you have coming up? Like uh, I know you, you, so you do the a monthly article in the Hawks Bay Grower magazine, Uh, but I've got one more coming up. But uh, it's time someone else at EIT took over and started Mm. writing that. uh, Yeah, I think. Someone else step up to the plate and take on the responsibility and there. You say you're heading into a little more uh, retirement mode, but I'm sure you'll be keeping pretty busy if I know you at all. Well, you? I've got my continuing involvement in Virginia, so could be should be heading back there before long. And then the Chinese said to me last year, well, if you're going to be retired next year, how about you come and do a vintage here, do some consulting work during our vintage? So that could be September, and they say... We want you back to do your uh, lecturing and presentations in uh, July, so I think that visiting professorship position will be available for a little while yet. Cool. Well, we'll keep tabs on you, and I'll keep in touch now that I have your new email address, <laughs> you know. And, uh, yeah, it sounds exciting. I'm certainly interested in what's what's going to keep progressing, and uh, uh I'll probably uh, stop here and leave a little message for everybody when well, we're I'm done. Well, I might just make one sure. little comment. Sure. It occurs to me, I haven't talked about, I'll call it the top flight Chinese wines. Mm-hmm. And I have a bottle of, I've got it here, but I've tried it at the winery in uh, Ninxia, the wine that won the decanter trophy for the best Bordeaux blend. This was a couple of years ago now and Gibelin uh, Winery, and I've got that wine here. And, yes, I've tried that wine, and it is a darn good wine. And is that Chinese winemaker as well? Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. awesome. Chinese winemaker, Chinese wine from a small winery that has a 150-ton type production. Cool. And um, soundly made... Uh, there was a lot of talk at the time, sort of, oh, this can't be real, this can't have come from China, I wonder what they've done, who stuck what label on what was sort of almost the innuendo of it all. Mm. But I have been to the winery, I've done an extensive in-barrel tasting there, and while I don't know if I'd necessarily give it the top Bordeaux blend rating, it was undoubtedly... It's the real deal. It is the real deal. Yeah, it's the real deal. Well, that's promising. And it now sells for 900 yuan a bottle in China. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'll have to wait till that one's given to me as well. But, well, cool. Thanks, Malcolm, and cheers.